Well, today's sermon might be the most useless sermon I've ever preached. Some of you might be thinking, I know, uh, Dave, just wait, we'll be the judge of that. I get it. And I don't mean useless because it's not true, and I don't mean useless because it's something that is not important. But I feel in a very real way today that this is very much preaching to the choir, as they say. The main point of the passage that we're going to look at today is God's people working together. God's people at work. And I truly believe that this is a church that really comprehends the importance of this point and is very good at it. And I say that because... It's a joy to work with you in these things. Now, that doesn't mean you get to tune out. This is one of those things we can, number one, always get better at. And number two, if we're not careful, we can easily slide away from. So we always need to be reevaluating and coming back together to say, are we truly working together? There's a lot to learn, and we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through the end of chapter 3, and we're continuing on in this series, God at Work, through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And just to bring you up to date, going back over the history of Israel, God has this relationship with Abraham and his offspring, the people of Israel. They find themselves enslaved in Egypt. God miraculously saves them calls them out, brings them through the wilderness to the promised land. And there he says he will dwell among them, gives them his law and says, here's who I am. Listen to me, trust in me, obey what I tell you, and I will be with you and bless you and you will prosper in the land. They are disobedient. They turn away. They run after many other things. And God warns them time and time again, come back to me. Return to me, put me in the highest place in your life, or I will have to send you in exile so that maybe there, maybe in a time of difficulty, you will seek my face. They refuse to listen. They are attacked by foreign armies. The northern kingdom is taken into exile, and then the southern kingdom. The people of Israel, God's people, are uprooted from their homes, from their cities, from their land, from their lives, and carried off in shame and scattered among foreign nations. And that's the situation when we come to Ezra and Nehemiah. And we began in Ezra and we looked at Zerubbabel and some others that came back about 60 years before Ezra comes on the scene. They come back and their purpose is to rebuild the temple and they do that. Although it's smaller, not as impressive as the original temple And they face great opposition. And then we looked at Ezra. He comes and he leads a return of people. And his purpose is to recover a devotion to God's law. And they do. And the people repent. And they come together. But it's difficult. And there's great sadness and hardship. And so now we have picked up the account of Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah, who is in Persia serving the king, he hears that his people are struggling back in Jerusalem. The city lies in ruins. The gates have been burned. The walls have been torn down. And he has a real heart for them. And so he goes before the king and he asks for help. He asks if he can leave and go back to that city and help them to rebuild the walls. 
And the king says yes, and he gives him the authority to go and do this and the assistance that he needs to make it possible. But this is a monumental task. Jerusalem's not a small city. It's not a small wall. And the people that are living there are struggling. They're scraping just to get by. How are they going to stop doing that so that they can start building this wall? This is the situation that Nehemiah finds himself in, a very difficult task. And I think we can learn a lot about how God's people are to work together in difficulty or in any time by looking at Nehemiah. And and as I've said, I want to be careful. I don't want us to just look at Nehemiah as this shining example of a, a perfect leader. I want to look at Nehemiah as someone who trusted in God. And the question is not, can we be more like Nehemiah? It's, can we trust in the God he trusted in? So that's how we're going to walk through this. And we start in verses 11 through 16. Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem. And he evaluates the situation. He takes stock of what's going on. And I love in Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel as well, these these great leaders, one thing that we see is that they are men of great faith. They trust in God. They trust that this is God's work and God's plan. But we also see they take time to plan and to think through things. These two things are not mutually exclusive. You don't either have a plan or have faith. You can have faith in your planning, and planning in your faith. And so, Nehemiah goes and evaluates the situation. Let's look at verses 11 to 16. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and reentered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Nehemiah knows that what he's doing is God's plan. And and that's the first thing I want us to see is that, yes, this seems like almost like a secular passage. Well, he shows up and the walls are in a mess and he takes stock and he puts a plan in place. And yes, that's what's happening. But underneath and in and through all of that, Nehemiah is applying his faith and his trust in God as he's evaluating the situation. And we see this in verse 12 where he says, I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. This is not just Nehemiah facing a task. It's not just him trying to figure out what to do. He understands he is trusting in the Lord in all things. He's applying his faith as he evaluates the situation. And we learn he shows up in Jerusalem and for three days, he takes three days before he evaluates the city. I wonder what he was doing for those three days. Bible doesn't tell us, but I think it's interesting that he goes... And he doesn't just jump right in and grab people and get to work. I think, again, this is just my opinion, but I think for three days he was spending time with the people. And then he took time to go out at night and evaluate the situation and look at the city and evaluate the walls. And I love this, that he personally tours the city to evaluate the damage. He goes out 
and wants to see it with his own eyes. He has not yet told the leaders why he's there. He's not yet sat them down and said, hey guys, I have a plan. We're going to rebuild the walls. Before he does that, he's going to take proper stock of the situation. And then he's going to put a plan in faith. You know, when we want to work together as God's people, when we want to step out in faith, trusting in God, we need to make sure we're evaluating the situation. We need to take stock and say, do I really understand what's going on? Too often we just rush forward into things. There is a time and a place to simply trust and act. But I think too often we jump to that. Sometimes we need to pause and look through the lens of faith at the situation to appropriately gauge what's going on. Ezra, or rather Nehemiah, trusts that God is at work. Ezra has prepared the way by teaching the word of God. Zerubbabel had trusted in God's word. Nehemiah has trusted and known God's word. And he's applying that to the situation. He knows God is at work and has a plan. He wants to live and work in line with that plan, not just doing his own situation or his own thing. He wants to evaluate the situation and then step forward in faith. You know, if we don't take that time to evaluate the situation, we might be stepping forward in the wrong direction and not even know it. Sometimes we step out and we just take what we've done in the past and we apply it to a situation. Well, God worked this way one time in my life and I'm just going to apply this to this situation. And we haven't really evaluated what's going on. You know, I worked as a laborer once for about a year and a half. Uh, on construction sites. And I was usually the guy that was brought in to dig the ditch or pound things in place, you know, the real low skill stuff. One time I had to jump on a dumpster to get the trash to compact down so the truck would pick it up. This was my level of skill. (laughs) But you know, I, I was the guy with the hammer. You need something beat into place. You need a wall moved out of the way. I was, I was the young high school kid you would bring in to do that. Hey, take a couple hours. There was one day I spent a whole day beating on a wall trying to get tiles to come off. I'm pretty certain it's because nobody else wanted to do it. It was a horrible job. I was the guy with the hammer. And, you know, sometimes in our life, we, we're the people with the hammer. Well, you have a problem, just whack it with the hammer. Work before, we're going to do it again. But every once in a while, if we don't stop and evaluate the situation, we don't see this situation requires a little finesse. It doesn't need the hammer. It might need the tweezers very carefully. So we have to evaluate the situation so we're not just coming in with preconceived ideas and plans and histories and saying, well, God always does it this way. I'm just going to do it this way. We need to stop and say, what's God doing here and now? You know, this is true in the church. We need to constantly evaluate our situation. Where are our hearts at as a church? Where are we growing spiritually? What are some areas that we're maybe blind to that we need to work on? It's one of the things the elders work on all the time. How do we lead this church? What's going on? What ministries do we need to start? What activities do we need to get people involved in? That's why we brought back dinner for eight. We said, you know, COVID's been hard. People need to get back together. Let's get them back together. And that was one way to do it. We need to evaluate the situation in our culture and our world. And say, are we applying the gospel to the situations in our world? It's also true in our individual lives. 
Each one of us, each follower of Christ, needs to evaluate our own lives. Where are we struggling? What sins are, are constantly weighing us down? Where do we need to grow in our relationship with Christ? What areas of our life are lying in rubble and need some maintenance and repair? And so, rather than just running forward recklessly into action, Nehemiah takes stock and evaluates the situation. But he doesn't just stop there. See, sometimes if we stop here on point one, we get stuck. I'm just evaluating. I'm looking at all the possibilities. True evaluation needs to lead to proper action. And the first step that he takes, and I love this, is he gathers the people. Nehemiah knows he's not building this wall on his own, right? That's a no-brainer. This one guy who was a cupbearer to the king. I mean, he really has no, you know, as far as I know, he has no real construction experience. But he knows he can't do this on his own. So he gathers the people together. Also, it's because God accomplishes his work through his people. God accomplishes his work through his people. And when he does that, and we live and work according to God's plan and in God's strength, then God gets all the glory. And that's what Nehemiah wants. Let's look at 17 through 20. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But Sanballat, but when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We are his servants. We will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Notice again. Again, he's he's organizing a work crew here. Going to get to work building a wall. But notice the faith that is in and through all of it. In verse 18, he says, the gracious hand of my God on me. He understands the building of this wall is going to be by the power of God at work in his people. Verse 20, he says, the God of heaven will give us success. It's not because they're so clever or so amazing. It will be because of God's power at work in God's people. It is faith that motivates their work here. We don't leave faith behind when we step out in action, obedience, and work for the Lord. The work comes from the faith. Now, Nehemiah confronts the people with a difficult situation. He gathers them together and says, Hey guys, don't know if you noticed. Things are kind of a mess. Walls lying in ruins. The gates have been burned down. Now think for a moment. These people might have been at one time, fairly comfortable in Persia. They've left that and they've come back and now they're in hardship here in Jerusalem. Things have not gone great. They've tried at various times to start rebuilding and then enemies have come in and demolished it. It seems by the time of Nehemiah, they've kind of just said, you know what, I'm going to build my house, I'm going to plant my fields, I'm just going to keep going. 
So here they are doing the best they can to simply live their lives. And Nehemiah causes them to look at a difficult situation. He confronts them with a difficult situation. Friends, this is often the role of leaders. They have to bring things to people that people don't want to see, or they've already seen and they've chosen to ignore, or they've already decided we're going to have other priorities. And leaders have to come together and say, hey, here's where we need to look. We can't ignore this. Nehemiah forces them to look at the difficult situation, but he reminds them that God has a plan. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 tells us his heart in this as well. He said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. Now that might sound kind of selfish, like, hey guys, we look really awful here. But it's much more than than that when you understand the Jewish mindset here. You see, the Jewish people living in Jerusalem, these are God's people. He had promised them to work in and through them and bless them. And that through them, they would be this shining light to the nations around them. So when Nehemiah says we are a disgrace, he's not just talking about their selfish natures. He's saying we are not giving the world a good picture of God. We need to do something about this. I think today we also struggle with disgrace. I don't think it's because our walls are crumbling. I don't think it's because paint's always peeling and the building's falling apart. Sometimes, sometimes those are things that need to be worked on. But when you think about what truly brings glory to God, there are some aspects I think in the church today we need to admit that we bear a bit of disgrace. I think so often we've replaced the gospel of Jesus Christ with personal satisfaction. We come to Jesus to feel good and be made happy rather than to bow before Lord God Almighty and say, you have saved me from my sins. I am a sinner and I repent. We just want to feel good. And so often admitting that we're sinners is a hindrance to feeling good. We've replaced the gospel with personal satisfaction. We've replaced God's word with personal opinions. Come to the Lord and we read something. I know God says this, but he can't really mean that because our world today has changed and things are different. And we're just going to pick and choose what we accept because we believe it should be different. Talked in Sunday school this morning. One of the greatest lies of our world today is the promise of freedom by determining your own identity. It is a lie from the pit of hell that you will be happier by you determining who you are. Your identity, your purpose, your gender, your sexual preference. It is a lie. These are opinions of the world that we are putting on the word of God and saying we value our opinion more than God's word. And church after church after church is falling into the trap. It's a disgrace. Not because it's about us, but because it takes the eyes of our Lord, off of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've replaced the worship of God with personal experience. We come to God or we come to church to get a feeling. 
We sing songs that make us feel a certain way, all the while trying to ignore the truth of God's word or substituting it with this experience that we get. All too often our churches are crumbling in in disgrace because we've replaced God with us. It is the new, modern, and so often American religion. At the root of so much of what many of God's people are doing is that we're actually worshiping ourselves. That is a crumbling building that needs to be rebuilt among churches and Christians today. I don't say that because I think that is the majority problem in this church. But I do think it is something as Christians we all need to check our own hearts. Why am I here? Do I want the glory of God above and beyond all else or am I here just to make myself feel better? What do I value as truth? Is it about me and what I want or will I bow before the word of God and say, teach me, it is your word and your authority. We need to properly assess the situation. We need to gather God's people and confront ourselves with the truth from God's word. So Nehemiah gathers the people together and he he explains the situation and God's plan for the situation. And at the end of verse 18, they get to work. I love that passage. He says, they replied, let us start rebuilding. And they began this good work. Think of the sacrifice involved in that. They were going to leave their fields for a while. They were going to leave their homes for a while. Some of these people didn't even live in the city of Jerusalem. They had moved into the surrounding areas. They go into the city to do this work. Together, they work together for God's purpose. Nehemiah is seeking God's glory among God's people. And in the next chapter, we're going to see that's exactly what they do. And in case you're reading ahead, I'm not going to read all of chapter 3. Okay, it's a lot of names that I'm not going to put myself through. But you can read it on your own. But before we get to that and how they accomplish the rebuilding of the wall, there's something else that we need to notice. As Nehemiah gathers the people of God to get them to do the work of God, and as they begin to get to work, And Nehemiah is declaring that we're going to see God's glory among God's people and work to rebuild the walls. There is something that is a common thread throughout history that always happens when God's people seek to work for God's glory. And that is, there are those that seek to oppose it. When God's people get together, we don't always agree. And you know, some disagreements are okay. It really is. It's okay to not agree on everything. There is areas that we can have differences of opinion on, but that's not the situation here. We see three men in verse 19 who are determined to cause trouble. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, them rebuilding the wall, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? There is a history throughout these books of opposition. It is a theme that the authors want us to see. It's a theme that God wants us to see. When we seek to be faithful to God and step out in faith, there will be opposition. And often, it will come from our own people. And so here, 
We see these three guys. We've seen two of them before up in verse 10. We talked about them last week. Now they're joined by a third. We've got Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And if we go all the way back to Ezra chapter 4, Zerubbabel faced opposition when he was trying to rebuild the temple. And people said, oh, we want to help. We want what you want. And when they couldn't get their way, they sought to undermine everything that was going on. They didn't want the temple rebuilt. They wanted to get their own way. Here it's happening again. We know from history that these three men are somewhat high-ranking officials in the area. They had been appointed by King Artaxerxes to be like regional mayors or governors over the area. And their jobs are threatened here. Because now Artaxerxes, who wasn't always the most thoughtful king in history, he didn't think everything through. Now he's told Nehemiah, oh yeah, you have authority. He forgot to kind of consult his papers and go, ooh, this is going to cause a conflict of authorities here. And so Nehemiah goes back and now he has authority and these three are going, wait a minute, hit the brakes here, Nehemiah. Who do you think you are and what are you doing? Now, it's interesting that they say, are you rebelling against the king? When I first read that, I thought, well, that's kind of dumb. He has a paper. It says, the king tells me to do this. It was obvious that he had authority. I don't actually think that they're questioning his authority. I think they're threatening him. Because the one thing that Artaxerxes might hear that would cause him to get back involved and change his mind is any time the king of Persia heard the people in this place are in rebellion. They know that Nehemiah has this authority. They know he has the paper. They're issuing a threat. What if the king hears? You're being rebellious. That's what we're going to do, Nehemiah. They're going to say and do whatever they can to get what they want. This is a common tactic used by those people that want to frustrate and undermine the work of God. But look at Nehemiah's response. Verse 20. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. He trusts in God no matter what. Gathering people together is hard. Getting together as a church is is hard. There are times of frustration. But when we have something greater than ourselves to focus on, it puts everything else in perspective. We need each other. And let me take a moment. There are some people still watching on the live stream. Friends, I love you. You need to come to church. It's time to come back. And if Orchard isn't the place, go somewhere else. Live stream is not church. You need to gather with God's people. We need each other. We need the difficulties that come with gathering with each other. We need the frustrations that come with, can you believe what so-and-so said? Because that's part of the way the Holy Spirit sanctifies us and works in our lives. And I want you to see quickly where this leads in chapter 3. Okay, we're going to move through this very quickly. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to read just a little bit. This whole chapter is the account of what they did to rebuild the wall. I'm going to read like the first two verses and you'll get the sense of the whole chapter, okay? 
Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. And it goes on and on. So-and-so built here, from here to here, they did this. The next section was, section was built by so-and-so. They did here, and they did this. And the whole chapter is that way. Okay? It goes through, and it lists all of them. Tells us who worked and where, section by section. But there are a few things I want to point out that happen when God's people work together. In chapter 3, verse 1, it tells us the high priest and the other priests picked up the construction tools and worked on the wall. I love that. They were not too good to get their hands dirty. They got involved and worked because that's what needed to be done. Throughout the chapter, there are high-ranking government officials who also work on the wall. Verse 9, 12, 16, 18, and a couple others talk about these rulers, these regional rulers of half districts, and they worked on the wall. Another ruler of a city appears in verse 14. Chapter or Verse 15 talks about the ruler of the district of Mizpah. He works on the wall. These were high-ranking people. They could have said, well, I'm going to send my people to do that for me. No, they grabbed the hammer. They grabbed the bricks. They got to work. These people were not too busy or too important to get involved. This is an all-hands-on-deck situation. Now, in a moment, we'll see there were some people that refused to get involved. The other thing I think is very interesting is that people who were gifted in very different ways got involved in building the wall. In verse 8, it says that there was a goldsmith and another guy who was a perfume maker working on sections. I don't know exactly what perfume makers do. I don't think it qualifies you to build a wall. Not sure. I don't, maybe I need to do some research there. I know a little bit about what a goldsmith would do. I'm not sure it qualifies you to build a wall. What's interesting here is that as a church, you know, we talk about spiritual gifts and we can go to other places in scripture. God gifts certain people to be teachers, other people uh, uh, to, to witness and be evangelists. God gives us spiritual gifts. And we should use those in the service to God. But there are times that we need to set aside our gifts and say there's a job to be done. And I have two hands and I can get involved. And we can work together for the glory of God. Sometimes I think we hide behind the idea of our spiritual gifts. Oh, that's not for me. I serve the Lord in other ways. But I have to say, one of the things I love about this church is that when we have a work day, so many different people show up. And and so often it's like, hey, this is what needs to be done. And people are like, I don't know how to do that. But then we'll have somebody else that does, and they'll say, do it this way. Okay, I'll work, and I'll get involved. I remember a couple years ago, we renovated this building. It was such a beautiful time of people just getting together with different backgrounds, different skills, and we worked. We worked together for the glory of God. But there are some people here in this passage who refuse to work. Look at verse 5. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. 
different translations have slightly different versions of under their supervisors. But the, the gist of the language here, as I understand it, is that these were high-ranking public officials. And there were some other low-ranking public officials that had been given direction and authority, kind of supervisors, over areas of the wall. And these nobles said, I will not work under that guy. I am more important than him. And they refused to serve under somebody else's authority. They refused to work as if their position was more important than God's plan. But we put this whole chapter together and we see a picture of God's people working together for God's glory. And I think it's a beautiful picture of how the church should constantly operate. And I think it's something we need to come back to and evaluate and say, how are we doing It's something I pray and I hope for each one of you that you're asking, how can I get involved? What can I do for the glory of God? And maybe it's not here at Orchard. Maybe you're coming and you're worshiping here and you're being fed and and discipled, but maybe the service God has for you is outside these walls, in your homes or your communities. But I do know this. It's very easy. And we see this in Ezra and Nehemiah. It's so easy to allow lesser things to become distractions from working together. We must keep the main thing, the main thing. I started this sermon by saying, I believe this sermon might be kind of useless. It's because I really do believe this church is good at working together. You guys love each other. You serve together, usually without any pretense or complaining. We jump in and we get things done for the glory of God. But I do believe we must be careful not to get complacent, either as a church or as individuals. We all have seen examples of what happens when a church does get complacent and when people refuse to work together over petty issues. We must never allow anything to become more important than the glory of God in our lives or in our church. And part of that is constantly evaluating our situations and our hearts and the opportunities that God is giving. A part of that then is to constantly gather together, to not give up meeting together because we need one another in the church. And then to step out in faith and work together for the glory of God. God does great things when God's people work together for his glory. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, as I think about the long-term impact of this idea, your people working for your glory, I can't help but think of your son who came and he gathered around him 12 feeble, fumbling, messed up men who went on with the power of the gospel, the truth of the gospel being proclaimed and lived out among them They went on to change the world. Not because they were so great, but because they were together focused on you who is alone great. And Father, I pray that would still be our view today. As we look at this account in Nehemiah, they rebuilt the wall, although as we see next week, it was really only even half of it. And yet... What a beautiful picture of people working together. In spite of opposition and distractions, in spite of other things that were pulling at their attention and and their priorities, they chose to work together 
God, I pray that we would evaluate our situations. I pray that then we would gather together and say, Lord, teach us, bring us together under your truth. And then, Father, that we would truly work together for your glory. That people would look at us and not be amazed at who we are, but amazed at who you are. And we could point them to your son, Jesus Christ, who alone saves. For it is in his powerful name we pray. Amen.